Let us turn this morning to the fourth chapter of our epistle of James, where we have been studying. James chapter 4. Those were wonderful passages of Scripture we had read to us. I hope that your hearts and minds were attentive to those words. Exodus 34, 10 through 17, Ezekiel 16, 1 through 15, and Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Our God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous, and we shall see that in just a few verses on how He wants us to conduct ourselves toward Him and toward His great enemy, this world. James chapter 4 has two lessons for us. The first lesson runs through the twelfth verse, and it is a lesson and warning and condemnation of covetousness, of envy, of pride, and of fighting among the saints of God. But in this passage, it gives us the cure, and it tells us how we can obtain the grace of God that is greater than the strife that wars in our members. The second lesson we'll take up in the second assembly, which deals with our humble submission to the providence of God in our lives and Him directing the details of our lives. Let's begin at the first verse and read it, and I'll comment on it, and we'll proceed through the twelve verses by the grace of God this morning. James chapter 4. These are the words of the living God. Let's humble ourselves before them. Verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Come they not hence, from the lusts that war in our members? Yes, that is where fightings and wars come from. And so we have here the origin of the trouble that was occurring in these churches to whom James wrote this epistle. From whence come wars and fightings? Now, when you read a verse of Scripture like this, and many have gone before you and had trouble wondering what this meant, it's hard for them to believe that something that the Holy Spirit would describe as wars and fightings would ever occur in a church. But if the truth be told... There has been far greater damage done to the churches of Jesus Christ from wars and fightings on the inside than wars and fightings on the outside. How many know about the cliques and divisions, strife, fights, grudges, bitterness that exist in many churches? There are divisions. There, it's like, it's like the occurrence at the OK Corral. When one clan meets another clan and they come to church, one sits in one part of the sanctuary and another sits in another part and the two never mix and that should never occur here as we read so plainly in psalm 122 earlier today we should desire for our brethren's sake and our companions sake the peace of this assembly these fightings and these wars that are described here are the animosity the enmity the strife the division the grudges the bitterness the cliques that occur in the churches of Jesus Christ. And here James is writing against carnal Christians and telling them right off the bat, let's address where this comes from, and then he's going to give us the cure. Now, we had this introduced already. And if you were careful about James chapter 3, 
verses 14 through 16, it said, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, don't lie, don't glory in that. This is from beneath. This is sensual, devilish, earthly religion. And we want to get rid of all that. Now, he gave us a cure in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, but he's going to give us more of a cure for it here in James chapter 4. The Holy Spirit of God is attacking division in the churches of Jesus Christ. We must be at peace with each other. Do you remember the appeals to peace in Psalm 122? Peace be upon thee. Peace. We are to, we are to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit cannot function where there is strife. He will not function. Because anyone that is striving and fighting against other men that have been adopted by the same Lord Jesus Christ and according to the grace of God should not be your enemies. They should be your best friends and companions. Some look at this verse and say this couldn't be referring to saints of God. This must be referring to those wicked Jews and their animosity toward all the Gentile nations. And so this is describing their fightings and wars among the provinces of the Roman Empire against each other and against the Roman government. But you, they, anybody who says that has not read the epistle. Because from the beginning, he addresses the twelve tribes scattered abroad that were born again. That were born again. He calls them beloved brethren. He says that they have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 2. And so he continues through the whole book. These are written to the saints of God. It's just the kind of language that James uses that we might not be used to. He doesn't beat around the bush. He just says, what are wars and fightings going on in the churches of Christ? Where does it come from? And his answer is, it comes from the lusts that war in your members. Language similar to wars and fightings are used in other places in the Bible. Did you know that the Bible describes saints not getting along with each other as brawlings? I mean, where do we think that most brawling takes place? In a bar, when men are worked up with wine or strong drink. That's why the Bible says strong drink is raging. Because using too much strong drink often leads to barroom brawls. But in the New Testament, it's called brawling. It's called striking. No man should be ordained who's a striker. That doesn't mean he joins the United Preachers Workers. And goes on strike. Please, brethren. It means he's got such a short fuse and a violent temper that he would hit someone. Can you believe that that even has to be in the Bible? Can you believe that someone that's desiring the office of a bishop might be a striker? <clears throat> Brawlings. Striking. Swellings and tumults. Those are seditious outbreaks. And Paul was worried that when he came back to Corinth, he was going to find swellings and tumults. Divisions, contentions, disputations, provoking clamor, which is loud outcry of disagreement, evil, hatred, malice, wrath, strife, and so many more, describe a temptation that affects all of us, and that's to have war and fightings with other church members. You know, the United States and the Soviet Union had what they called a Cold War for 30 or 40 years after World War II, until a few years ago when the Soviet Union showed how weak it was because God tore it to pieces. We called it a Cold War. 
So sometimes it doesn't take you actually going out and buying a gun and shooting another church member. We use the word war to describe something where we just hate each other and do a whole lot of intimidation and a whole lot of threatening and say a lot of evil things about each other and make fun of one another. But we don't actually hurt one another literally. And so we look at these words and every one of you should be able to say, I know exactly what he's talking about. Have you ever had a cold war in your house? A cold war in your marriage? A cold war with the kids? Oh, maybe that'd be so cold. But a war with the kids and fightings. And here's the warning. From whence come wars and fightings among you? The children of God ought to live peaceably. They ought to get, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. The apostle taught. War is of the devil. All war is of the devil. Now, sometimes a nation has to go to war to protect itself, but the reason there's a war is because of sin in the world. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. We still have members in us that are sinful members. They are members of our old man. And those old man members are described as anger, wrath, malice, envy, hate, and so forth. And it's those members that we are supposed to mortify. What does the word mortify mean? Put to death. Because a mortician does with dead bodies. So we're to mortify those members by putting them to death. In another place it says to crucify those members. That's just another way of putting them to death. Hanging them on a cross and putting their life out. And so that is verse 1. And the apostle is dealing with something that we would wish. We're not in the churches of Christ, but we know that it is easy. And it is our job to understand where this comes from and to find the cure in this passage, lest any of this be true of us. Would to God the Lord could look down from heaven and say that it's the most peaceful church on earth. Lord, help us, not for our praise, but for His praise. And for Him to be unfettered in this church because of the peace that reigns among all members. Verse 2. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. The envy and wars and fightings that were going on among these saints were to a great deal the result of their lust for things. They envied one another. They wanted to acquire more wealth. And they resented those that had it among the church members. And so it says, ye lust and have not. We have a tip-off here as to what's under consideration. And that's why I said the lesson is against covetousness. Ye lust and have not. And the fightings and the warring are because you see these things in others and your ambition and your greed is so great that it causes you to resent and hate and have despiteful attitudes toward others that have those things. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill. Now, were they literally shooting each other? Did each church become the OK Corral? Kill is not to be understood literally here any more than wars and fightings, any more than adultery in the fourth verse. This is figurative language of power that tells us how angry, hateful, despiteful, and cruel and murderous these people were in their envious thoughts toward others. Remember, Jesus said, 
Ye have heard by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Sixth commandment. But I say unto you, if any man be angry with his brother without a cause, he is in danger of breaking that commandment. You kill whenever you have an envious, wicked, malicious, hateful, despiteful, cruel attitude, spirit, words toward others. And that's what the Apostle is teaching here. In your desire for things and your covetousness, you resent and despise your brothers and sisters and companions in the house of God for the things that they have. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You know, if you actually killed somebody, you could take what they have. But this isn't actually killing them. This is resenting them and killing them in your heart. Because you resent them. When you resent or envy someone, you are guilty of murder. And you'll be held accountable for that murder by God in this world and in the next world. It doesn't matter whether you've actually put a knife into someone or not. There is no difference in the sight of God. We all admit that. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, when it says that a man who looks upon a woman to commit adultery with her has committed adultery already with her in his heart, we understand the Savior's words. We should understand them as pointedly. In Matthew 5, 21 through 26, where it's anger and name calling is murder in the sight of God. So it says, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. It is a terrible thing to be covetous. This is a monster. It will never let you go. Day and night, this monster chases you, eating your very soul up because of your envy toward others who have what you want. You desire to have, but you can't get it, no matter how much you hate them, no matter how much you wish evil against them, which is a plague to your soul. Covetousness is terrible. Contentment is glorious. If you are contented, you can sleep at night so much differently and so better than others, so much better than others. But if you are covetous and you're envying, you're thinking about them all the time. You become your worst enemy. That person isn't even doing anything against you. But because you carry envy to bed, you lay in that bed and conspire against them and hate them and it grinds you and you grind your teeth. And the bile of your soul eats up your body. Contentment and peace and love of others, as the book of Proverbs says, is health to your bones and marrow to your bones. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. It doesn't work. No matter how angry you get, or resentful of others, it doesn't bring the things you want. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Even all this fighting and warring and envy and strife and bitterness and resentment and covetousness going on in these churches by these carnal Christians, the apostle attacks it with severe language. You don't have what you need or what you're looking for because you don't ask for it. You don't lust for it. You don't envy others for what they have. You don't hate them and try to get what they've got. You should ask for what you need. But you don't have it because you're not asking. You are approaching everything with a carnal attitude, a worldly attitude, a a spirit of emulation that wants to equal or exceed another person in some measure of the world. That's what you're doing instead of trusting me to take care of you. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. What a terrible group of people. If I didn't know your hearts, I wouldn't think that he was talking about Christians. 
I'll put it that way. Because if I said, if I didn't know my heart, you'd excuse yourself. You know what? Your heart is just like my heart. And if it weren't for the grace of God keeping us restrained, we would burst into a fight or war or kill each other with hateful language or hateful thoughts so easily. And if we tell the truth, if we confess and admit before God, uh, we know that it happens, doesn't it? It happens. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. Verse 3, ye ask. When you do get around to asking, you don't receive because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. When you do get around to praying to God for the things you need, you don't get them. He doesn't answer your prayers because people that are fighting, children that are fighting with parents, parents that are fighting with each other, church members that are fighting with other members, God's not going to hear your prayers. What are your memory verses for this past week? Do they not say something like this? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. God is not going to hear your prayer. And if you are looking for to consume it upon your pride, you have a lust. You know, there is the lust of the flesh, the bodily appetites. There is the lust of the eyes. And there is the pride of life to be esteemed by others as important. If you ever ask for anything to satisfy one of those things, God's not going to give it to you. And Christians usually pray with that in mind. If you listen to the prayers, they're usually praying for more things. Lord, I will need a better job. Lord, I need a bigger house. Lord, I need a better car. Instead of, if they would put the things of the Lord first, away from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the Lord would take care of those three things. Well, He wouldn't take care of the pride of life, but you know what I mean. He would take care of all the things the Gentiles seek after. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. You know there's a way to ask amiss. There's a way to pray that's wrong. Look at 1 John chapter 5. You know there's lots of verses we could go to for any of these points. If we couldn't, if we, we could take much time on each of these verses, but I don't believe it's necessary. You can see the point. What amazes me, brethren, the older I get and the more I read of the New Testament, what is the greatest concern that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ have for the saints of God? Is it doctrinal integrity? No, it's peace and love. Over and over and over. Look at this epistle. Over and over. Their respective persons in chapter 2. They're getting angry in chapter 1. The rich and the poor resenting each other in chapter 1. It just goes on and on. The bitter envying and strife in chapter 3. Look what we're doing in chapter 4. Can, can they come up with something new once in a while? I'm speaking as a fool. Do you know what I'm... When you read this, Lord, how about something new? If we just preach the words of the New Testament, do you know how much we're going to run into love and peace? Over and over again. And if you're honest and you look in the mirror very closely, you know, like a like we do when we get up in the morning, or we should, you look very closely, you're going to see a lot of blemishes there according to the Word of God. And most of those blemishes are going to be in how you relate to other people. Oh, the Lord knows holding doctrinal integrity isn't all that hard. And we get pretty excited about that. Because while we're holding doctrinal integrity, we can, we can pull out our tomahawk and take ourselves another scalp. But then the, then the cry comes for more peace. And so here we are. First John chapter 5, ye have not because 
you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence that we have in Him. Do you have confidence in the Lord that when you pray, He is going to answer your prayer? You should. That's called faith. You believe that God is and He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything, He heareth us. Is every word of God important? Yes, it is. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. Praise the Lord. Believe those two verses. But let's emphasize, because of James 4, according to His will. And His will is not to help our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eyes, or our pride of life. If you're asking for God to give you something so that you can appear better compared to the other saints in the house of God, it is not going to happen. If it does happen, it's twice as bad in God's judgment as if He did give it to you. Because that means He's turned you over to the evil desires of your heart. You know, God sometimes gives quail. When men ask for quail inappropriately, they ask amiss for quail. Did you know God sent quail? He sent Not enough, just right, or too much? Way too much. Oh, yes. And when he sent them quail, and their bellies were full of meat, it says he also sent something into their souls. Leanness. He dried them up spiritually. That quail was stacked three feet high, 20 miles in all directions. They went and piled it. And the one that piled the least looked like those snow drifts that you saw on the Internet this past week from New York. It tells you the size of the pile of he that gathered least. They had their bobcats and bulldozers out, and they plowed up all that quail until they each had mountains. You know, you can only eat a little bit. And before they, they couldn't even thank God. They were just eating the stuff. They were just plucking the feathers on it. And the Lord struck them dead. But the whole nation, because they wanted quail instead of trusting his manna, he sent leanness into their souls. You don't want for God to answer all, you don't want God to answer all your prayer requests. You want him to answer the ones that are according to his will. We need to come to verse four. Oh Lord, this is such an indictment of us to have verses of scripture that are describing Christians in general in many different places called the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And if When we're honest, Lord, we know that when we read these words, they're true. They're true. Lord, forgive us and let it not be true of us. Verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We do not understand these words literally. These churches were not all engaged in wholesale wife swapping. These churches were engaged in lusting after things and lusting after those things to the point they were covetous, they were no longer content, and they envied those others that had those things. Can I prove that? Read the verse. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. That is the sentence state. It's not literal adultery. It is spiritual adultery. It is being a friend of the world. 
and letting those things of the world consume your interests. These are the belly worshippers described in Philippians chapter 3 that mind earthly things. When you mind earthly things, you are an adulterer in the sight of God. We had read to us Exodus chapter 34 by our brother David this morning. In Exodus 34 it says, You are to destroy all the Canaanite nations, lest ye go a whoring after their gods. God calls it whoredom when you're supposed to be worshiping Him and loving Him, and you go and love a false god. Then we had Ezekiel 16 read to us, where God found that little baby in a field not swaddled, not salted, and in its blood, and not washed. He called, he said for it to live, and it lived. He fashioned it into a beautiful woman. Her renown became known throughout all the nations. That's the kingdom of Israel. And then she played whoredom. His it was are the last words we read from Ezekiel 16, 15. And if you were to read the next 40 verses, you would get a most graphic X-rated description of Israel committing adultery using literal terms to describe spiritual adultery. Because that is how God looks at it. And the Lord knows how to get our attention. He is jealous. And His name is Jealous with a capital J. And when you befriend the world, who is the enemy of God, you are showing how much you despise Him. And His jealousy burns when we love the world. When we befriend the world. When we let the things of the world crowd out, encroach upon, and steal our affection for spiritual things and the things of God. As I told my family last night when we had devotions over this passage and some of these passages that I've just referred to, if a man were to take a woman to a restaurant and a man were to take his wife into public and whenever he goes, she wants, she spends most of her time looking at other men and making arrangements to go over and talk to other men. What would that do to a man? He's taking his wife out. He's dropping some big bucks at a very nice restaurant, but she keeps getting up and leaving to go chat with a couple of other men that she's seen in the place. What would a man think? His jealousy would burn. And there's nothing unscriptural about that. The Lord tells very plainly in Numbers chapter 5, if a husband is jealous of his wife, whether there is any cause for it or not. All he has to do is haul her down to the priest. He's going to swear her to an oath. He's going to give her a potion. And if she has been guilty of going after another man, she is going to rot starting in her crotch right there. Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31. Jealousy is something God protects because God is jealous. We are His bride. We are His wife. And whenever we look at the world and we get excited about their things versus the things of God, it is Adultery to him. The Bible speaks of twice, ten times, twenty times. No, a hundred times. On and on the Bible goes and calls it whoredom and adultery and fornication. When we flirt with the world. You know, some of you say to me, well, I'm not as bad as the world. But you're flirting with the world. Why not align yourself totally with Jesus Christ? In the things you listen to. You're flirting with the world if you're listening to the world's music. If you dress like the world, you're flirting with the world. If you shop where the world shops, you're flirting with the world. Most of those places aren't going to have a single modest thing in them. Why are you even in there? All it's going to do is seduce your mind away from the things of God and the spiritual mod- and the modesty and chasteness that the Bible describes. 
What do you read? Who are your friends? Are you flirting with the world? If you're flirting with the world, God is jealous. And He's going to resist you. And He's going to move against you. And He's going to blow against you. And then people wonder why their lives have no prosperity, no fatness in them. It's easy. You're flirting with the world. That's being a friend of the world. See, the world is God's enemy. Now let's take the man at dinner a little further. The man takes his wife to dinner. He calls her ahead of time before he comes home from work. He sends flowers. He tells her to take an hour off and to have a bath before he gets home. He dresses up. He takes her to a fine restaurant where he has reservations. He takes her in there. When he walks in, he sees across the room a hated enemy who has despised him and stolen from him and spread rumors about him and is wicked and has threatened to kill him. And he sits down and his wife says she needs to go to the restroom, the ladies' room. She needs to freshen up. She's gone for a number of minutes. And he goes and finds his wife talking to that enemy very personally and intimately. Now, what does the husband feel like? He feels betrayed along with violated. He's angry. This is the Lord. When we flirt with the world, we are flirting with the God's enemy. We are flirting with the people that killed His Son. When you're watching television, you are watching Hollywood. Hollywood would crucify the Lord Jesus Christ all over again in a minute. The music they play. You're flirting with the world. And there's a God in heaven. And He wants to know why in the world... Forget that. That's no pun. Puns are too intelligent for me. There's no pun there. When God looks down and wonders why we're not listening to music that honors and glorifies Him. Why, why would you want to listen to any other music? If you love the Lord your God and you're supposed to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, why would you listen to any other music? He looks at it and says, you're flirting. Why are you flirting with the world? Look at me. Am I not enough? I said, live when you were in that field. I fashioned you beautifully. I put you in my kingdom. I adopted you as my children. Why do you want to listen to their music? They're going to take you to hell. They're all going to hell. Why are you flirting with the world? James 4, 4 is a powerful verse. All that is in the world, this is from 1 John 2, this is using the Scripture to comment on the Scripture. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And if any man love the, the world... The love of the Father is not in Him. You have given up your love of God in order to love the things of this world. Forget money. Forget status. Forget looks that the world identifies or the world's standard. Forget all that accomplishment. How close are you walking to the Lord? Are you living like His wife and His bride? He chose you to be His bride. You adulteresses. You adulterers. Well, now you know James 4, 4 and what it's saying. These carnal Christians, they wanted things so bad, they were even hating and fighting among the saints of God for those things. Verse 5, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Do you think God wasted some ink when the Holy Spirit wrote in the testimony of Scripture that the Spirit that is in us lusteth to envy? 
Do you all know that I'm, I'm helping you understand that verse? Do you all know that there is inside of you a spirit, your old man, your flesh, the members of it that does envy? Do you all know that? God did not waste ink. The Holy Spirit did not waste breath. The Scripture does not say it in vain. The Scripture is telling us the truth that there is a spirit in us that lusts to envy. This is not something any of us are free of. It's something we are to put down, mortify, and crucify. Because we're adulterers and adulteresses at heart. By the spirit that lusteth in us after to envy others and resent them for their advantage. To envy them for their wives. To envy them for their husbands. To envy them for their houses, their cars, their jobs, their looks, their height. Whatever you can think of. There's a spirit in us that lusts to envy. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? No. No, the Scripture is not saying that in vain. It's a true fact about each of us. Verse 6. But. Do you know how many good, beautiful, wonderful buts there are in the Bible? This is one of them. This is one of them. But He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. But He giveth more grace. You know, after those five verses, you could feel kind of hopeless. Wars, fighting, killing, lusting, coveting, envying, befriending the world. A spirit that is in us that we certainly know is true, that it lusts to envy. You could feel kind of hopeless that you're crushed. I can't defeat that spirit. It is overpowering. When I see someone else get a date with someone that I want to get a date with, it hurts me so much and I get so angry inside. Oh, you know, I could go on and give you a list of a thousand things, but it would, would it make any more, would it make the point any stronger? We envy on so many fronts. But he giveth more grace. But he giveth more grace. More grace than what? More grace than you had before? More grace to Gentiles than to Jews? More grace to New Testament Christians than to Old Testament Christians? What's the word more in there for? You, you want me? They say this is one of the toughest verses in the New Testament to understand. What? But He giveth more grace. More grace than what? More grace by the Spirit of God in you than the power that the Spirit of lusting to envy has in you. Why in the world do they struggle with such simple passages? You don't care about that, and I don't want you to care about it, but I get, it's so discouraging sometimes. But He giveth more grace. What's the word more there for? We've got two things in comparison, and God's grace, He gives more than something else. What is that something else? The Spirit in us that lusteth to envy. That's our old man, but He's given us a new man. And the grace of that new man by the power of God, is able to overcome the old man. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He can give us the grace to live above ever envying anyone. He can give us the grace not to befriend the world, but to live holy for the things of God and of heaven. He can give us the grace. And He will give us the grace if we meet the conditions for that grace. He has already given us enough grace so that when we hear the conditions preached, we want to lay a hold of them for more grace. 
But if you don't lay a hold of them, you won't get that more grace. So he said, wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. What's a humble man? A humble man who is one who gets down. He has no pride. Do you know where fighting and contention and strife come from? Only by pride. Who said it first? Who said it? Pardon me? Solomon said it, yes. I was just trying to wonder what... Hey, who are, where's Solomon in here? Raise your hand. But yes, yes, brother. Yes. And I know you've quoted that verse to me on several occasions because you like how it just narrows it all down to pride. Only by pride cometh contention. Do you know where all fighting comes from? Pride. If you had any humility, you'd let the other person go and, and stop fighting. Only by pride cometh contention. Strife, fightings, and warrings, and killing that we have here in context. So it says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. When we humble ourselves before men, we don't want to be great. We, we reject the pride of life. Just let me be a servant. And Lord, let me be a servant of yours. Oh, isn't the book of Proverbs full of this? Pride cometh before a fall. God resisteth the proud. If you want to be honored, what, do you, what should you be pursuing? Humility. Because humility is what precedes honor. If you'll get down, God will lift you up. We're going to get it again in verse 10. But the book of Proverbs is full of that. This sixth verse, but He giveth more grace. There is more grace available for you to defeat all that was described in verses 1 through 5. All the lusting. All the asking amiss. All the fighting. All the warring, all the envying, all the befriending of the the adultery, the spirit that lusteth in you to envy, but he giveth more grace. How do you get that grace? You get rid of your pride. Hate pride. The thought that you are better than others. Get rid of it. It destroyed the devil. He said, I will be like the Most High. And he was cut down. He was cut down to hell. The Bible says about ministers when they're ordained, that they had better not be novices lest they fall into the condemnation of the devil, which would be to be guilty of the same sin he was guilty of. So you don't ordain novices in 1 Timothy chapter 3, because that is the condemnation and sin of the devil was his pride. God resisteth the proud. If you've ever heard the words, the immovable object, an irresistible force, and an immovable object, well, I'll tell you about an immovable object. It's when God's resisting you. If God's resisting you, you aren't going anywhere. God resisteth the proud. Lord, have mercy. You aren't going anywhere in your life. You are shut down. You're going to be lost and drowned in the problems of the first five verses. But He giveth grace to the humble. If you'll humble yourself before God and men, Lord, I'm but a little child. Lord, I'm nothing. All I want to be is a servant. Lord, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord will lift you up. He'll honor you. He'll promote you. He'll promote your family. Lord, help us to get down. Help us to get down and to be humble. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore. You know, we've had a wherefore and a therefore. We've had a wherefore in the first part of verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith. 
the proof that He gives more grace and sufficient grace to overcome the spirit that lusts to envy others is by humbling yourself before God. Now we have a therefore building further from that in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Choose to be content with what God's given you in your state in life. Submit yourself to God and submit to Him in the time He chose to convert you. Do you know how many people say to me, why did God wait until I was 50, 60, 70, 80 to convert me? Why didn't He show me these things earlier? Does He know that I squandered so much of my life? Submit yourself to the Lord. He has a reason for that. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Your state in life, your job, your profession, your intelligence, your abilities, your family, all the things that men measure themselves by, submit yourself and learn to be content in whatever state you are in. Submit yourselves to God. Made those choices for your past. The family tree that you came from. When you were converted. All those things He chose. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit and confess and repent for any foolishness of pride, of envy, of lusting, of befriending the world. Submit yourself to God and say, God, this is the woman coming back to her husband. This is the woman in the restaurant getting her husband and taking, saying, I want to leave this place right now. And getting him outside and saying, I'm so sorry for what I did in there. I will never do that again. Please, please take me home. Please take me home. I only want to be yours. I only want to be yours forever. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Come back to Him and confess your folly of chasing the world. Confess your folly of flirting with the world. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Lord, You're all I want. You're all I seek. Please, have mercy upon me and forgive me. I give myself to You. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is everything else in those earlier verses. The devil is that wisdom that we saw in chapter 3. Bitter envying and strife in your hearts. That is wisdom that descends from beneath. It is devilish. It is the devil that wants you to be murderous and speak evil of others. It is the devil that wants you to lust after things you do not have. It's a devil that's a liar. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ answered the devil with Scripture three times? And what happened? The devil left him. The devil left him. The Apostle Paul gives us a long string of armor in Ephesians chapter 6 and says that you are able to stand in the power of His might and you are able to resist the devil. When he throws fiery darts at you to cause you to doubt God, throw up the shield of faith. I believe what God says. I don't need to lust lust after my neighbor. I don't need to envy him. Because if I put the kingdom of God first, He has promised to give me everything. If He's taken a little bit away from me right now, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. You ain't done nothing. And you hold up the shield of faith. And you quench his fiery darts. And you go through the rest of that armor that is there described in Ephesians 6. If you'll resist the devil, he will flee from you. If you put up a fight, I'm not going to befriend the world. And submit yourself to God, the devil will flee from you. Do you know why? He's got limited resources. There's a God in heaven that has unlimited resources. And he can give you more grace. And more grace. And more grace. 
The devil has limited resources. Therefore, when he's running out of devils to ascend to your account because you're giving him trouble and resisting him, he'll leave you alone and go to easier pastures. Resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we resist him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6. He'll flee from you. Verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Oh, what, what a contrast. Resist the devil and he'll run away. Draw nigh to God and God will draw nigh to you. You know, Dave didn't want to read Exodus 34 verses 10 through 17. He wanted to read Exodus 34, 5 through 17 because in 5 through 9 in Exodus 34, it described Moses being able to see the backside of God. Moses had begged in Exodus chapter 33, Lord, If you've chosen me to be the leader of your people, reveal yourself to me. You know, Moses had seen him in the burning bush 80 years earlier in his life. Now he wanted to see a little closer view, so he said, reveal yourself to me. If I'm really that special in your sight, show yourself to me. The Lord said, no man can see me and live. But I'll hide you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll show you my backsides. And that's what is in verses 5 through 9 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed by before Moses, and he proclaimed there the glory of the Lord. Moses did get to see the backside of God. No man could see the front side. Now, what did he see? Everybody wants to know, what did he see? What did God look like? Was it purple? Was it red? Was it white? There weren't colors, brethren. There was sound. And the sound was the Lord proclaiming the glories of his Character and nature. The Lord, gracious. A gracious God. You say, well, that doesn't mean much to me. You should have been a Canaanite then for the first 40 years of your life where you had to offer your children to your gods to make peace with them. The Lord, gracious. Long-suffering. Abundant in mercy and pardon. Wow. That seeing the Lord. How do you get that Lord close to you? Draw nigh to Him and He'll draw nigh to you. How do you draw nigh to the Lord? You confess your sins. You repent of your wickedness. Let me tell you, all you have to do is do what you would do towards your husband. Confess your folly. Repent of it. Everything out of your life that could possibly be construed by your husband as being flirting with an enemy. Do that with the Lord. Get everything out of your life that could possibly be construed by the Lord as flirting with the world. Confess your sins. Go to Him in humble prayer, begging Him to have mercy upon you. It doesn't take eloquence. It takes humility. The man who said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, was heard by that short prayer. Fervently meditate upon His words. If you can compare the analogy in your head, I'm not going to say it again. But if you can think of the analogy in your head of a woman to her husband who's been caught flirting with an enemy, you would do the very same things. Fervent meditation upon what God has said to us. Making His love letter to us called the Bible the most important thing we have ever read. The most important thing we could ever do with our time. That delights us more than anything else. Remember, it's the man that delights and meditates in His Word day and night that prospers. Drawing nigh to God is confession and repentance, humble prayer, fervent meditation, preparation for all of His ordinances. You know, this is where 
please understand my language. And I don't like, this is where we make love with the Lord. Please understand what I mean by that. This is what He's chosen. This is His day. This is a date with the Lord. How much did you prepare for this assembly? Did you prepare for this like a woman would prepare for a date from an estranged husband that she wanted to win back? Did you prepare that way to come into this house today? What were you doing last night? What were you doing this morning? Did you get up on time or were you rushing around this morning? You prepare for His ordinances because this is where we come. And this is where we meet Him and this is where we worship Him in a formal public way. And you draw nigh to God by the spiritual efforts that are described in the next few verses. So let's look at them. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Clean up your life. This is the outside of your life. These are the things you're watching, you're reading, the friends, the clothing, all of those things. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. This is everything on the outside. And purify your hearts. This is everything on the inside. When you purify something, you get out all the dirt. You get out all the spots. You get out all the impurities so that you end up with 24 karat gold. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Cleanse your hands. Change your lifestyle. Change what you're doing, you sinners. And get your heart pure, thinking of only one thing, the God of heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you, lest you be double-minded. A double-minded person is one who says he loves God. He may want to love God inside, but he keeps befriending the world from verse 4. This is how you draw an eye to God. He tells us right in the text. And it's so important. It's so important, and this issue is so serious. It's so serious, God calls those who befriend the world adulterers and adulteresses. Then it's this serious. Instead of rejoicing in your carnal ambition for advancing in this life, whether you measure it by family, by finances, by health, or by anything, look at the seriousness. Verse 9, be afflicted. That's a choice to afflict yourself. Be afflicted. That means to trouble yourself. That means to fast and to pray. That means to give up things and to go after the Lord with your might. Be afflicted and mourn and weep that you have run away from your husband and flirted with his enemy. Every one of you should be able to follow the analogy through here. The spiritual adultery that began in verse 4 and right down through these words. This is what a woman ought to do. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Show the seriousness of your soul. To your husband, but our husband is the Lord. Be afflicted and mourn and weep about your sins, about loving the world, about flirting with the world, about your lusting, envying, and the strife that you've had in your heart against your brothers and companions in the church. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Don't laugh about this matter. And the laughter that you've had in befriending the world and in your carnal ambition, crush it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. There is nothing to be happy about if you have befriended the world and He is calling you an adulterer and adulteress. There is every reason to be afflicted and to mourn and to weep and to turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. The Lord's sight is so good that it sees right inside us to the very thoughts and intents of our heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are 
naked and open unto the, the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The eyes of Him. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of men. In the sight of the Lord. Men can't see everything that's going on inside. The Lord sees everything that's going on inside. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to heaviness inside, where you submit yourself to the Lord on the inside. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. You want to be lifted up, don't try to lift yourself up. Don't try to lift yourself up by envying the advantage of others. Don't try to lift yourself up by carnal ambition. Lift yourself up by humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord, and let Him lift you up. David was so humble. Young man, as he held, I've already said this last Sunday, I know. I'm not repeating myself for a loss of words. I'm repeating myself because it's so valuable. Young man, who art thou? I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. David humbled himself. Did the Lord lift him up? Amen. He lifted him up. Yes. He lifted him up. He lifted him up over the house of Saul and all his enemies and made him a great king over Israel. Verse 11, speak not evil one of another, brethren. As he wraps up his point about what goes on in churches, speak not evil one of another, brethren. This evil speaking about others is judging them, condemning them, criticizing them, hating them, resenting them, despising them to in your heart, with your family, with your wife. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. This is whispering, tail-bearing, and slandering that goes on among the saints of God. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. If you condemn your brother for any matter of liberty, and it doesn't matter if, if it's Jewish eating of meats or Gentile eating of meats offered to idols, if it was any of those things, the Jews and the Gentiles did have those conflicts. But if you're judging your brother about anything that is outside of Scripture then you're sitting in judgment on the law of God itself as it is not adequate, as it is insufficient. And so you become a judge of the law and you're sitting in judgment on God Himself. Because the next verse goes on to say there's only one lawgiver and it's not you. And therefore, everything outside of Scripture, you should never judge another brother about it. That's why we have Colossians 2 that says, Therefore, let no man judge you in respect of a holy day. That's not Christmas. That's the holy day of the Jewish calendar. Let no man judge you in respect of new moons. Let no man judge you in respect of what you eat or don't eat. Because Leviticus has passed away. Don't let anyone judge you about those things. This judging the law is judging harshly. Because the law does not tell you to judge harshly when you judge anyone else by things that may be in the law. First of all, we are judges of the law when we judge outside the law. We're saying the law is not good enough. I have a better standard of righteousness myself. And that is not true. You're pretending to be the lawgiver and there's only one. And it's God Himself. But then if you judge harshly those things that are in the law, you are guilty of the law again. Because the law says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the law says, Thou shalt not bear any grudge against thy neighbor. And the law tells you to deal gently and kindly with your neighbor in all of its ways. And so if you do not do that, then you're speaking evil of the law. And if you're speaking evil of the law, then you're a judge of the law. And you're not a doer of it. You're a judge of it. Because you're not keeping it the way God intended for it to be kept. 
There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, and it is not your place to save or destroy by you misinterpreting and misapplying the law. Who art thou that judgest another? And so we have Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Romans 14 says things like, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. We are not going to dispute and judge about things outside the law of God. For he stands before God. If he esteems one day, he esteems it to the Lord. If he doesn't esteem that day, he doesn't esteem it to the Lord. And so the apostle wraps up in verse 12 his warning against the fighting and warring going on among the saints to whom he wrote this epistle. Brethren, the most important verses are verses 6 through 10. But he giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore. Verse 7 is what we're to do. Submit yourselves therefore. Resist the devil. Draw nigh to God. Cleanse our hands. Purify our hearts. Be afflicted and mourn. Turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to heaviness. And humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. What will he do? He will draw nigh to us. And he will lift us up. And the devil will flee. And you will have spiritual victory. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. You have a choice right now that you will make. You have heard the words of the Lord. The devil will snatch the word of God away from you. And you will wander out of here no better than you arrived some time ago. Or you will hear what you have just heard and say those are the words of the living God. This day I will make a greater effort to afflict myself and to humble myself before God in prayer and supplication for His forgiveness and tell Him He is my all in all and beg Him to forgive me for flirting with the world. And I will humble myself before Him and His people and I'll wait upon Him to lift me up if or when He chooses to do so. Brethren, this is Christianity. This is loving the Lord our God and His Son Jesus Christ. May God have mercy upon us not to forget these words. In Jesus' name, amen.